Hey, this is Kara from Ruminate, and you're listening to Questionable Food. How long do you keep trying to make something work that's not working? How hard do you push yourself and everyone around you to achieve this goal that you don't even know if it's possible? Is that the price of parenthood these days? In this episode, I chat with Rochelle Bostwick, founder and farmer of Earthkeeper Farm and Sunspirit Farm. As a parent of a special needs child and a mother of three, Rochelle shares with us the challenges COVID-19 has brought on her farm and family, the delicate balance between the two, and the struggle of pursuing one's dream in the face of crisis. So this episode's about family. Can you tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit about your family? You know, you have three kiddos, Liam, Emery, and Isaac. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So, like you said, we have three sons. Um, They are 10 and 7 and 3 years old. And our youngest son, Isaac, has Williams Syndrome, which it's a pretty defining feature of our life. So, Williams Syndrome is a genetic condition that um, is just like a spontaneous genetic mutation that happens. And it occurs in about 1 in 10,000 people worldwide. It is totally non-discriminate of race, class, or gender. It's just absolutely even across the board in all humans. So with that, it's a deletion of about 26 genes. Um, and you have, I don't remember how many, 30,000 genes. So it's a pretty small deletion. It's called microdeletion. But one of those important genes it's missing is called the ELN gene, which stands mm-hmm. for it's the elastin gene. And so elastin is something that's all over your body. It's in all your muscles and all your connective tissue. And it's really important in your circulatory system. So with Williams syndrome, you have all these different random things that are kind of connected to these deletions. So that would include like low muscle tone, a lot of gross motor delays, but there's also a pretty serious heart condition that goes along with it that Isaac has. And there's also cognitive delays and cognitive impairment and some other random stuff like a high risk of sudden death during anesthesia. And also there are some different behavioral things that go along with it too. So... There's a lot of being very social is an aspect of Williams Syndrome. So how does Williams Syndrome affect our day-to-day life? Isaac is just a pretty intense kid. With Isaac's Williams Syndrome, he has a lot of medical needs. He's got a ton of doctors like a cardiologist, an endocrinologist, and a neurodevelopment, ENTs, and all sorts of stuff. So he also has a lot of therapies that go into that. So that's a big part of our life is doctor's appointments and therapies on a weekly basis. So I guess that's enough about Williams Syndrome for now. But the Williams syndrome does put him at a higher risk for his heart condition. So mm-hmm. inflammation for him is going to be a major issue because he does have this narrowing throughout his cardiovascular system and specifically surrounding his heart. So okay. I know with COVID, they're talking about different inflammatory issues. Yeah. So that's one thing that really terrifies me is how that would impact him if he was to contract it. And then also along those lines, he has that high risk for sudden death during anesthesia. So that means that he couldn't really go on a respirator or ventilator or anything like that because it would just be too risky for him. So those factors combined are pretty terrifying to me. And that really limits what we can do as a family and what the farm can do as far as what our options are for exposure. So that's a little bit about our family. Maybe I'll backtrack and tell you more about the family family too. Yeah, totally. we, We do have the three boys. And we live on our farm here, and my parents live on the farm too in a separate house, which is pretty fun. And then we also have different people who come and live on the farm. Most years we have maybe like 
three to five different people who are coming and living on the farm, Mm -hmm. which is a really cool environment. You get to see different people. It's kind of like having the world come to you because they come and you can, you know, learn about all their lives and where they come from and what they do. But this year's been a little bit different. We only have one person living on the farm. So that's been a little bit hard to not have that big community, I feel like, that's more normal for us. And I imagine hard from the labor perspective, too. I mean, getting used to having that much help and having kind of the business structured that way. Absolutely. So most years, our labor is made up of these folks that come and live and work on the farm. They're called woofers, which is through the organization WOOF. It stands for Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms. We also are a host for WorkAway and HelpX. There are a couple other different like networking organizations that help connect workers, like volunteers with hosts where they go and live in exchange for room and board. Mm-hmm. And we've been doing that for a long time, since we first started. So I'd say that about 12 years we've been hosting WOOFers. And we posted, last I counted, we had maybe over 250. That was a couple years ago too. So I'd say we probably hosted about two or 300 people have come and lived and worked on the farm and they stay for anywhere from like maybe a week to maybe six months. So it's really fun. You really get to know people that way. You get to know them as a human outside of kind of some of these other social standards that we put on people. Like you don't get to see what kind of house they live in because now everybody lives in the same house and you know like you don't get to see what kind of car they drive because you're not going anywhere like you're kind of all set in the same setting and you kind of get to know people more as a person versus kind of some of those social markers just aren't there anymore Um, totally and that's an interesting way to look at it that I hadn't really thought of before Okay, so what was your yesterday like or what was your morning like? I mean, what what is this the last what was the last 24 hours for your family and your household in juggling all of these things? So, yesterday was a good and productive day. So, we have a couple off-farm volunteers that come, which is really nice, and yesterday was a good day. We had 3 volunteers come. So, we worked a lot on weeding and cultivation. Volunteers usually come from 8:30 to 12:30. Uh, In the morning, I get up with the kids and get them ready. Andrew is usually still sleeping at that point, but I have to wake him up at 8.30 so he can take the kids. But he doesn't go to bed till about 3.30, so after five hours of sleep, he gets woke up with children. And the volunteers and I got through, we had some potatoes that were super gnarly and needed to get weeded, so we got through those, and we also worked on thinning and weeding the carrots and the beets, which was nice. Meanwhile, Forrest was cultivating on the tractor. We have an antique Alice Chalmers G cultivating tractor that we use all the time. So he was going through and cultivating all the beds, and then we were hoeing and hand weeding behind him. We got through quite a bit there, and then I spent the afternoon hoeing a bunch of stuff because the soil moisture is really was really nice yesterday, and the weeds were quite small. So I just kept hoeing. <laughs> until three o'clock when I had to come in to take the kids so that Andrew could go to um, work at that point. And then I still really wanted to finish hoeing some beds. So at about five o'clock, Forrest came in and watched the kids until seven. So I went back out and hoed three more beds, but then my arms were going to fall off. So I had to stop that. And I did a little bit of greenhouse work and came in at seven and put the kids to bed at eight. So that's pretty typical. I had a little bit extra work time yesterday, which was super nice because Forrest watched the kids in the evening, which he wasn't doing because he started going to the farmer's market and I was worried about his exposure level at the farmer's market coming back to the kids. But yesterday I was desperate to finish those beds 
because if you don't get them hoed when they're just right, then you have to hand weed them. So I knew if I could get a few more beds hoed before my arms fell off, it would save us a lot of weeding. So we try to work smarter, not harder, and I knew if I got it done, it'd be really great. So yeah, I got him to watch the kids for a little bit, so I keep going. It's like, is an example of these like little bitty pieces of maybe risk, but it's going to yeah. be so many hours of saving and... That's exactly what it was. I was like, I don't know. I mean, we asked, so he wore a mask when he was with the kids and I asked him to be careful about it. And he's quite careful at the farmer's market, but it was one of those situations with the childcare. It's like, you're just doing the best you can. Yeah. It sounds like Forrest is like kind of part of the family. He totally is. Yeah. He's completely part of the family at this point. And I think that part of that too is we're also hungry for social interaction. <laughs> Like, oh, totally. The people who you can see, you're just like, I just want to hug you. Because <laughs> uh, hugs are like somehow <laughs> this forbidden fruit right now, which is weird. <laughs> Even when Forrest and I are standing in the same room inside talking, I find myself stepping back. Even if we're at like what used to be a normal conversation range, I'm like, I feel really close to you right now. I have to step back. It's funny the way things have changed. It changes all of our like little the way that we interact with other humans, which is so fundamental. Um, what's the reality for this season? What's it like this year? Well, because of the virus and because of Isaac and our precautions that we have to take, you know, to keep our family safe. At first we were saying no woofers at all. We weren't going to host anybody. Like a lot of people, we didn't know how to handle the virus. We didn't know what we were yeah. going to do about it. So we just went with the safe route and just said, no, like we're not going to have anybody here. But right now we have one man here named Forrest who's been here for three seasons. And we didn't even know if that was going to work out because of the exposure risk. But as oh, wow. we kind of kept figuring out, are we even going to farm this year? Like, that was a question. We kept kind of working through this and found different ways that we could make processes that we felt like were safe enough and secure enough to reduce the exposure and keep everybody safe while still living really close together, you know? Forrest does have his own house, so we're not sharing kitchen or bathroom or anything like that, but we're still, you know, together every day. So we went through that phase, and then we decided that we are willing to accept woofers or workaway folks if they can stay at least two months. And that's really thinned the crowd of who can actually come, because a lot of people were interested in coming for shorter periods of time, like a week or two weeks. So mm -hmm. for that reason, we don't have any other people right now who are here at the moment, and we, there's one other woman who's scheduled to come, but we'll see if that works out. So it's definitely thin the crowd of who's here. Most years we have, I'd say about three to five people living on the mm -hmm. farm. So to go from three to five to one is definitely hard. I'd say our labor in general, we're probably down to about half the labor that we had last year, um, or maybe even a third, just in the number of hours of people working is definitely a lot less. All of us have to be super careful you know, because of what we could bring home to Isaac. And sometimes I even get jealous thinking about other farms or other families and how carefree they can be and how, you know, like, if we just didn't care or if we didn't have this high level of risk, we could be hosting woofers, you know? I had inquiries for people who wanted yeah. to come for a week or two. We could just be doing business as usual, more or less, if we just didn't care or we didn't have this extra burden. So that's frustrating sometimes, but... You know, it's not really even worth thinking about what you don't have. Like, you just have to manage the situation you do have. So so what does that mean for you guys functionally in terms of literally, like, how much you can farm? Yeah, it's really challenging. I mean, obviously, if you only have half as many hours 
you can do half as much work. But yeah. the interesting thing about a farm is that this season's reality is really based on last season's planning and last season's action. So it's not, yeah, farming isn't the kind of thing you can just change. You can't just turn on a dime because these are yeah. natural processes that they have their own timeline and their own progression. So it's such a long-term situation compared to the fast-paced society that we live in. It's like right now is my planning phase for next year. Like, which is weird to think it's only June, but what I have to be thinking about is next June and the year after that, because what I do with the fields at this moment is going to affect that time frame. So when we're thinking about what we can do right now, so much of that was already determined last season. So how much, you know, yeah. how many fields did we put into wheat? How many plots did we save for vegetables? What kind of plants did we put for the elderberries and how much space is that going to be? So we're doing our best to kind of keep things afloat right now and maintain what we have. So like the option is always there on a farm to just mow it down and plow it in, right? Like, yeah. okay, even though I planted this whole field of wheat, I'm just going to mow it down because I can't do it. Like I can't get it harvested. I can't get it bagged and cleaned and processed and tested and sold. No, and that's something that I'm thinking about doing with some of our wheat, which is unfortunate. So, I mean, I guess in this moment, we're doing our best to cope with it and try to figure out there's a lot of prioritizing that happens on the farm, you know, making work lists and then just taking off the bottom half of the list and just saying, yeah. well, that's not going to happen. And a lot of what I'm doing right now is making some pretty major cuts to the farm plan for next year, which is unfortunate because I don't know what the future holds. But thus far with the virus, it's been interesting because I think when it first started, I feel like everyone, including myself, thought that this was like a short-term situation. Like, okay, we'll get through this yeah. couple weeks, you know, it'll be fine pretty soon. Like this is a temporary situation. And now we're a few months in and nobody knows when it's going to end. And so you still kind of want to believe it's temporary, but part of you is like, how many years are we going to be doing this for? Yeah. So I feel like that's a real struggle in my mind right now is trying to wrap my brain around the longevity of the situation and how do we really function in this world and how do I meet these this reduced labor situation? And So at what point do you have to, or have you at all had to make those decisions about mowing something down and have you done any of that thus far what have been the cuts that you've made or plan to make in the near future normally we take a big crew of people and we walk through and hand weed entire fields of wheat which is really fun and uh, quite a communal experience but you can't do that if you only have two people so i'm not exactly sure what we're going to do about that i don't know if we're going to dedicate more hours to trying to get that wheat cleaned up or if we're just going to mow it so we'll see um, other cuts that we had to make. So we also do vegetables is kind of our main business. Like it's kind of been the bread and butter for Earthkeeper for a long time. Yep. And we had to scale back our vegetable production this year. I cut it by about half of what I was planning on doing. And those have been kind of selective cuts on trying to cut out the things that don't sell well at market or more niche crops or more, you know, stuff like kohlrabi and bok choy, things that aren't really the big draws. But it's also meant like scrapping a lot of things in the greenhouse. Cause just like I was mentioning before, kind of we all thought this was temporary, but now it's feeling not temporary. So we seeded a bunch of things based on the original farm plans, thinking that, you know, in a month or two, things will be back to normal and we could plant it all. We just couldn't. So I've composted a lot of transplants this year. I've just 
Mm -hmm. Like, I just can't do it. So we're just tossing them out. And that's been hard when you have, like, literally hundreds of tomato plants and you're just dumping them in the compost pile. But you know that if you don't do it, you're going to have so much more work and you can't handle that. So it's better to cut your losses. That said, so much work went into them existing and it's... Yeah. I sing that little, you know, the Frozen song, the Let It Go song. It's every time that I'm cleaning out the greenhouse, (laughs) it's like... Me and Elsa are singing Let It Go together. <laughs> Try, trying to make it a little bit more uh, yeah. approachable or less sad. That's what, it, that's what I'm doing. I don't know. So that's been hard to accept. But That's a true mom. Uh... <laughs> yeah. You know your mom if you're singing Disney songs while you're working. <laughs> For sure. And like personally relate to them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like I feel like Elsa in this moment. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Oh, great. It's me. So you're talking about cutting massive amounts of things that would certainly have been for sale. And when we think of the labor had costs in terms of your time management, but then also, you know, wasn't necessarily a financial cost to you that you've lost that. Like, how is this changing the balance of the balance sheet for your business? It's not good. So we did the plant sale this spring actually was better than expected. So we also sell plants in the springtime. And we had a really strong demand this year. I think that a lot of people are thinking about food security and trying to grow some of their own food. So that was quite helpful to get that early spring infusion of cash. It was stressful getting through it as far as managing new logistics and such, but we did a pretty good job. And I don't know about the vegetables. I mean, like I said, that's always been a really big moneymaker for us. And I mean, obviously, if you cut your production in half, you're going to cut your income in half. And I don't know where that's going to put us at the end of the year. I mean, that's why as a farm, we're kind of shifting our focus to more of the elderberries. And last year, we did start a new operation called Sun Spirit Farm, which grows CBD hemp. So we've kind of been dedicating more resources to that because it feels like it can be a lot more profitable long term. But at the same time, it hasn't really made much money yet. So yeah, I don't know. It's That's the long-term planning aspect of trying to balance something that has been a consistent moneymaker, albeit not a very big moneymaker, but it has been pretty dependable for us for a long time versus something that has a higher earning potential, but is also much more risky. So those are some of the things that we're thinking about. And how do you mentally balance that? Because the exact comment I was going to make, you're making these moves that are inherently riskier, but are almost a necessity because of the situation Mm -hmm. you're in. But, you know, you're in that reality where you're putting a business that's at risk because of this pandemic at further risk, but also at a further potential for survival or making these decisions because Mm -hmm. it's hope of survival. I mean, Mm -hmm. What's going through your mind as you're kind of being like, okay, this is where we're putting our eggs and your hand is forced a bit on it. You said it right. Like the hand is forced. We just don't have the labor to keep doing the vegetables. Period. End of story. There is the hope that it could change. There is the hope that if we dedicate enough resources, maybe we could really try to reach out to more woofers and try to reach out to more workaway folks and really try to invest more resources in trying to find more people to come and do that. But Honestly, I don't I don't feel energy and enthusiasm towards trying that. <laughs> at some point, yeah. you have to go where your own passion lies. I don't want to be at the computer all day trying to email people and doing a lot of that work. Like, yeah. I want to be in the fields growing food. So I'm kind of going to go with what's working in the fields more because of 
that that's where I want to spend my time. So if I see a lower crop, for example, like the elderberries or the hemp that have potentially less labor needs and a better earning potential, then dedicating resources towards that feels like a lot higher priority right now than trying to make an old system work in this new world. That makes complete sense. And I think we see a lot of those forced but exciting but also nerve-wracking pivots that people are just having to make mm-hmm. now. You touched on these long-term ripples that are happening because you're planning for yeah. next year. The methodologies you guys use at your farm, your biodynamic, mm-hmm. correct? It, yeah, it, yep. It probably even has further ramifications than a conventional farm probably has. What's it looking like and, and how is this pandemic realities right now impacting your future permanently? Yeah, I guess I should start by saying that the farm has taught me how to plan long term and that I wasn't really a long term thinker before I started farming. And um, there's one this one farmer who says that you should have a 50 year farm plan. Wow. Like it's a long range deal. If you're doing things like planting trees, it's because you're thinking 20 years down the road. So that's what working with the earth is all about. It's a long-term relationship. So planning for me is kind of like my coping mechanism. Some people say they take life day by day. It's like, I take life in a big picture, like year by year. Yeah. I feel a lot of anxiety when I don't have a master plan because I feel like yeah. the actions of my day-to-day need to be a cog in the process of where we're going. And if I don't feel grounded in that long-term plan, it's like I have a hard time functioning well. So how does our long-term plan look? Definitely the virus has messed up all my long-term plans. And so I'm finding it very stressful to try to figure out these things, you know, especially related to childcare and school and what's that going to look like? And Andrew works off farm and how does that look? And what kind of income will the farm have with these different ventures and new ventures and new operations? It's really hard to say. I think the Earthkeeper farm is going to look really different next year. At this moment, I feel like we're still existing, riding the tide or residual effect of what we've always been as far as having the vegetables and the wheat. But I don't think that'll be the case next year because we don't really have the capacity to continue some of these long-term crops that we've always done. I don't know. I think that the farm will always be here, or not always, but will do its best to stick around for a long time. But I think it's definitely going to look different. And I think that I'm kind of coming to the point of accepting some more of these realities that the virus has brought with it and just doing my best to cope with them as opposed to thinking they're going to change or thinking that I can find a way to change them or thinking if I try hard enough, I can find a solution to them. So I'm kind of shifting from that mindset to just saying, okay, well, this is where we are. How can I be successful within this moment, within this situation without trying to force the world back to where it was? It sounds like all of those core variables that you mentally compute into your long-term planning just have these big question marks. And it does sound like previous long-term planning is now of-the-moment planning, and it's just a 180-degree difference, really. Yeah. We have to rethink so many things. Yeah. Let's talk more about that. You guys are a family farm in that household piece. Thinking back to when childcare facilities and schools shut down, along came that joyous time where each household had to decide how they were allocating care with everyone at home. How did you guys go about making those decisions? What was that like for you? So I think for the first few weeks to month, we were kind of in just containment mode. What are we going to do? How are we going to keep Isaac safe? Nobody go anywhere. Everybody just stay home and hide. 
but that also coincided pretty okay with our growing season because it was March into April. So we could just kind of hide out and hope the whole thing blew over. So at that time, Andrew, who he works off farm, but at that time he stopped working off farm. So we were all kind of here just sort of figuring it out, you know, like we would just do day to day trade off with the kids and everybody try to get their work done. But now that we've kind of settled into a routine, Andrew started working some crazy 10-hour shift that involves being awake a lot at night. So he generally takes the kids for a chunk of the day. So I get about five hours of daycare Monday through Thursday, and then my parents take the kids on Friday, which has really been very helpful. But it was quite challenging, especially when we were trying to do the homeschooling with the kids, because Isaac is pretty hands-on, so it's pretty hard to do anything else when you're watching Isaac. So it was really hard to try to homeschool kids while you're watching Isaac. And that was to the point where we really needed two people, one person to homeschool the kids and one person to watch Isaac. So that killed all farm productivity during that time lock, which was challenging. But I feel like now we've gotten in a rhythm, but it does involve Andrew not sleeping very much at night. So I don't know how sustainable that is long-term to have one person in the house only sleeping about five hours a night. So I'm sure that we'll be feeling the repercussions of that pretty shortly. But I don't know what we're going to do long-term. So daycare for Isaac is more complicated because of the risks that he has. He was in a daycare center that we were really happy with and he was making really great gains there. He learned how to walk there. He walked at daycare for probably a month before he would even walk at home, which was exciting because he was, he was about two and a half years old and he still wasn't walking. And then he would walk at daycare and I was like, oh, like there's hope. You will learn to walk someday. And as a parent, you're like, oh, they're really comfortable here. Yeah. And he's learning from the other kids. He was learning more of his language skills were doing great. And socially, he just loved it. Like, he just loves to be around other people. So it was really hard to take him out of that setting. And I've thought a lot about putting him back in that setting. I've even talked to other Williams parents. What are you guys doing as far as daycare? I've posted on different, like, social media Williams groups. Is anybody putting their kids in daycare? Is it safe? And everybody says, no, it's not safe, you know? And I I read different posts about different people having to quit their job, you know, because they just don't have childcare. So that's been really hard, and I really wonder what fall will bring for him. He's supposed to go into an early childhood special ed program for half day, and then he was supposed to go to his old daycare for half day. And I just think about how much exposure that would be to be with two separate groups of kids every day. It's like double the exposure he was going to have. So I don't know. And that's not even to mention, you know, our big boys and what their school environment looked like and their concerns as far as what kind of exposure they're bringing home to Isaac because of going to school or, you know, different social activities or trying to be on the soccer team. When we all live this close together, everyone's actions affect everyone else. And our exposure is really shared between our whole household plus my parents' household plus Forrest. So we kind of try to have shared exposure standards on what everyone's doing. That's also exhausting mentally to try to manage other people's behavior to protect your child. But it's where we're at. So, Have you heard or have you thought of what is that threshold where you'd be comfortable allowing him to kind of go to that those child care facilities again or or do you think you kind of it's just it's unknown at this point 
I don't know. I mean, I watched the caseload really closely and I felt like a couple weeks ago, I was like, okay, things are going down. Things are getting better. Maybe there's a chance that we could, you know, get him there in a few weeks. But now it's going back up again. You know, places are reopening. I feel like everyone's kind of acting like it's over, but it's not over for us. So I don't know. And I wish I knew. And that's kind of where when I'm planning for next year, I have to plan for the scenario that there will be no daycare because I don't know if there will be. So, like, I have to start there with that that concept in mind, that I'm going to be homeschooling the kids in a couple months with Isaac. And, you know, what can I realistically accomplish? You know how stressful it is when you're trying to accomplish something that's just literally impossible. So how long do you keep forcing yourself to do impossible things before you change the standards, you know? I know when you and I chatted last week, it was kind of like, when at what point do you feel like you have to give up the dream and for sure but you shouldn't have to do that and it's almost like there's part of you that refuses to do that but you also refuse to put your child at risk mm-hmm. but can you realistically refuse all and then i i know my family has felt that same way where that you're describing it's like all right well you know what goes sleep yeah <laughs> and it's like, yeah. but eventually your body breaks down mm-hmm. and i've been thinking so much about that like the phrase that keeps rattling around my mind is the death of the dream. How long do you keep trying to make something work that's not working? How hard do you push yourself and everyone around you to achieve this goal that you don't even know if it's possible? So you're gonna make me cry now. (laughs) Oh no. It's like it's horrifying to think that we are now that now you're gonna make me cry. You're doing it too. (laughs) But yeah it's like it's like the death of the dream versus the death of your child. Like, mm-hmm. why is that mm-hmm. your two choices? Mm-hmm. Or the, like, mental death of your spouse or yourself. Or just a complete loss of identity and just giving up who you are as a yeah. person. You know, like, is that the price of parenthood these days? It feels like it. I don't know. And then you think about, is it selfish to keep going? Like, is it selfish to put Isaac in daycare would that be too selfish of a decision to make in order to maintain the farm? You know, like weighing all these heavy variables, it's very taxing and I don't have an answer. But it's also like as a parent, you're a role model for your children mm-hmm. and pursuing your dreams is also an important part of the the role model that you are mm-hmm. and kind of like what you're showing your kids and who you are and your own motivations, which is going to translate into them pursuing their dreams Mm -hmm. in their life. It's a whole other layer. It's just a cascade that you think of where there's literally no answer, but you have to pick one. Mm -hmm. Where does perseverance become a bad thing? Yeah. When is it just too much? And I think as women, I think we're conditioned to feel like we have to sacrifice and have to give up. And so to, to push through some of these challenges, even if it means extra burden on other people, when is that justified and when is it not justified? You know, and I think the pandemic kind of takes that to another level because it's like, when is it justified to put your kid into daycare if he could potentially contract a life-threatening disease? You know, that's a lot higher stake decision than just having a kid go to daycare in a normal setting. I don't know. But here we are, like, we're still doing it, you know? We're still trying to figure it out. You know, you give up so much to be a mother and, like, the loss of identity. I remember that with my first child. I was like... I don't even know who I am. Like, 
is all I am just like a lactating creature that's here to care for this child? Like, is that the extent of my existence yep. now? Completely. Yeah. I mean, and I've got one. No. I mean, and that's part of the reason why I feel like keeping the farm going is so important to me because it is, farming is my truest passion. Like it's, it's the thing that I love more than anything else aside from my children. I love my children more than farming, but farming is a close second. It's just, yeah. I don't know, working with the earth is endlessly fascinating to me and I don't want to give it up. No, totally. And you shouldn't have to. We've talked about some truly heavy topics To close our conversation, there are two questions we'd like to start asking everyone at the end of each episode. We've already covered this a bit through our chat, but when it comes to the questions you ask yourself each day, what is most top of mind? What is the one question that keeps you up at night that you wish you had the answer to? My big kind of overriding question is how hard do you push? Like, when is it time to give up? When have you said, I've done enough and I've tried enough and this is just not going to work and I'm just going to give up? But... And when do you push through and say, these are problems I can manage, I can figure this out. And I mean, I think that that really pertains to the farm and where we're going to go and what we're going to do and how there comes a point when perseverance isn't an admirable quality anymore, where it's just too much cost involved in reaching a goal. And so yeah, I feel like that's really what I'm thinking about for the farm and trying to figure out what is the goal here and how how do we cope with these current realities in reframing what we're doing here because what what we used to do here isn't working like we literally can't keep doing things the way we used to do them so how are we going to change because if we stay stuck in our old mindsets of how we used to do things we're just gonna i don't know disintegrate not work fail. We're going to fail. That's what we'll do. How hard do you push and when do you give up? How selfish are you in pursuing these dreams that you have? And when do you reframe them and when do you give up on them? This is turning into just kind of a sad podcast. <laughs> I know. I, it like So the next question we ask, which almost seems inappropriately light, is kind of around like well what are you what makes you optimistic for the future but I, it just like seems it seems ill-placed I don't know well I feel like farmers are uh, endlessly optimistic which is kind of interesting because when you talk to a farmer in the moment they'll tell you how the rain won't stop raining and you can't get the crops in and seed costs are way up and the price at market's way down and tractors broken and you know They'll go on about all the things that are bad, but then there's always this part of them that says, but next season, it's going to work. Next season, it's going to be amazing. And I feel like I'm, that's totally me too. Like this year, lots of things aren't working very well, but I'm still optimistic that it's going to work. I still feel like we're getting there, even though... We're having all of this trouble and having to reevaluate and having to figure it out and let go of some things and refocus some energy. I still feel like it's going to work, you know, because if I didn't, I'd have given up already. And I mean, hey, you've taken a investment in elderberry, which yeah. at one point, like I couldn't even find anywhere in a store for well, actually probably like a month. Yeah. So 
that's where we're going. And the, that's one thing that I am excited about. The elderberry bushes look amazing. They have so many blossoms on them. There's more blossom than leaf when you look at them. They're just like these huge, oh. big, white, beautiful bushes covered in flowers. There are so many flowers I'm actually worried about. It's going to be too many flowers. But that's a good reason for optimism. I think there's going to be a spectacular elderberry crop this year. Let's look at it as a symbol of the future. I think elderberry that's plants. a good way. That's a good thing to do. Rochelle, I can't thank you enough for chatting with me. And this has been an amazing conversation. And thank you for, for sharing so much with us. Yeah. I really appreciate that. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. I'm so happy you're doing these podcasts. It's been great talking to you. To learn more about the issues discussed in this episode and about Earthkeeper Farm and Sunspirit Farm, follow the link in this episode's description. You can also visit Earthkeeper Farm at earthkeeperfarm.com and Sunspirit Farm at sunspiritfarmmi.com. Do you think that it was too depressing? Do you think we should try to talk about happier stuff?